This is a production of the Z Talk Radio Network. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and their guests do not necessarily reflect those of Z Talk Radio, its affiliates, or sponsors. Wow. It's dark. Well, let's have some light on the subject. Put on your critical thinking caps and please refrain from hugging. It's time for Dimland Radio with your host, Jim Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons. Hello and welcome to Dimland Radio here on the ZTalk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'm your host, Jim Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons. Remember, I'm not really a doctor. I just play Doctor Online. And uh, I have a message for Fox, the uh, the network. Uh, I don't know why, but they seem to think that I have a lot of interest in watching the, the uh, live TV event, which is going to be the musical version of A Christmas Story. Now, don't get me wrong. I really like the movie A Christmas Story. Really do. I really, really like it. Uh, it it hits that nostalgia nerve center in my brain, and just it just it, even though it takes place what in the '40s or something like that, uh, it it just transports me to when I was a kid, anticipating Santa and anticipating cli- uh, Christmas and all that kind of stuff. It just takes me back to that, and so uh, yeah, I, I really do like the movie. Uh, but this, it's on my Facebook page. They keep showing ads for it. And then, uh, you know, if I watch the sporting events uh, that are presented on Fox, it seems like every commercial break is watch this thing. And it seems like an odd place to be advertising it on sporting events, but that's what they do. And it's really, man, it's just nonstop, it seems. That they're really pushing this thing, and if it's your thing, it's fine. Tune in and enjoy it. But I'm not that big into musicals. There's a handful that I like: Wizard of Oz, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I like those, but most of the rest of them that I've seen, that I've seen some of, it's just I don't know. I just don't get the musical genre of films. I just don't get them. Uh, but if you like it and you want to watch that, it's just... I mean, when The Who, <laughs> uh, when Townsend uh, helped adapt uh, Tommy for as a Broadway musical, I remember seeing little clips of that, and I just went, oh, God. That's <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know. They had, like, I guess, a group of dancers that were there being bullies to Tommy when he was blind and, and deaf and unable to speak. And they would, you know, they're doing the Tommy, can you hear me? And they're all bouncing around like real tough guys dance thing. And it just went, oh, God. <laughs> not my thing. Okay, it's not. So, Fox, you can stop pushing it. All right. And there's just. I don't know why. Why That's a movie that shouldn't be remade, that shouldn't be done anything with. It's perfect as it is. It, it's, it, it, what makes the movie is Darren McGavin as the old man, as dad in that movie. He's terrific. As old man Parker, 
He's terrific. He makes the movie. Melinda Dillon, she's also very good. And the voiceover of Gene Shepard, the guy who wrote the stories that this movie is based on, fantastic. It just all works together really, really well. The other parts, this, you know, the kid who plays Ralphie, uh, Peter Billingsley, Peter, yeah, I think that's who it is. Um, he does a fine job, but it, every, it's it's fine. It's terrific. It's a great, a great little movie. You know, a great little movie. Not you know, nothing spectacular or anything, but just it snuck into theaters and didn't get much of a, of a look at uh, until it started showing up on the cable stations because it was cheap to program and got shown over and over and over. Much like uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, the status of that. You know, if it, there was a point at which if you had cable and you know, you, you're, you're flipping through the channels and you see, oh, It's a Wonderful Life was on, it's just ending. Just wait about five minutes and flip around some more, you'll find it again. You'll find it, it'll be starting up somewhere else. But uh, anyway, um, things have changed a little bit since then. Uh, let's see. And I saw this today on the internets, on the Facebook, a little clickbait thing. The headline was, 10 Best Singing Drummers. And I guess it, it was shared on a Husker Du face group fan page that I'm a, a part of, Facebook group fan page thing. Uh, and they said, uh, number four is interesting. So click on it. And number four turns out to be Grant Hart. He was the drummer for the band Husker Du. He just died recently. And I thought, oh, that's interesting that they would have him ranked on there, that they would even, whoever put this together would even think to put Grant Hart on there. He was a singing drummer. Uh, but the thing is about this list, which just shows you it's complete bullshit, is uh, number nine was Karen Carpenter of the, Car of the Carpenters, the brother and sister singing duo. She was number nine. Now, you may not have remembered that she also played drums. You, did, you may not have remembered that. And I don't think that's the bullshit part. Because because it was number eight that I thought was the bullshit part. Number eight was Peter Chris from Kiss. <laughs> it's, he, he's, he's, not, he's, he's certainly not a better singer than Karen Carpenter. Karen Carpenter has a fantastic voice and... And uh, Peter Chris has a marginal voice at best. You know his his best song that he sings with Kiss, uh, not Beth, but the song uh, "Hard Luck Woman." I like that song. I like the way it's done. His voice is okay on it. It's he doesn't have a lot of range, and he strains to keep it together, but and, and to keep it in key and all that. Especially the live version of Beth. It's just okay. He's 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 not a great singer. And then. What this site does is they'll put up little videos that they'll connect to their top ten list. And there's a video of Karen Carpenter on, I, I don't know if they had a variety show or if they had a variety special or something like that. Back in the 70s, they did a lot of those types of shows. There was Donnie Marie and, 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 and the, the, the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle show, which was a morning show thing. But, you know, this variety show, they would do these things. And, you know, Sonny and Cher had it, and Carol Burnett, of course. And um, Anyway, so they, they had this Carpenters thing, and they were demonstrating that Karen could play drums. And she would. they had her running around the stage playing drum bits for 
this, this uh, strike up the band. I think was the song that was playing, and she's she's actually pretty good. <laughs> she's and I so when so, so you you compare now. Okay, she's certainly a better singer than Peter Chris, and I think in some ways she seemed to be a better drummer. <laughs> and the the video clip they they include in their in their deal there uh, for. Uh, singing drummers isn't even Beth or Hard Luck Woman. It's it's uh, 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 Detroit Rock City, which Peter Chris doesn't sing on. Maybe backing vocals, but he, he doesn't sing on the song. So it's but it's a cool early black and white uh, footage, uh, uh, concert footage of Kiss because back in the day, back when they were young and they were dangerous and the hype was was just building about them. Uh, they were a lot of fun to see. I never did see them in concert. I did. I do kind of regret that. that I never got to see them um, when they were young. But I, my enjoyment of the band Kiss ends at 1979. All right, it goes through 1979. Their 80s stuff is just pure crap. <laughs> it's it. They embraced the hair metal of 80s music, and that's what they put out. And it's just the stuff I know of it, there might be something in there. I even like the disco album. Well, not the whole album, but I like the song I Was Made For Loving You. It's kitschy, it's it's silly, it's, you know, it's Kiss, uh, but, you know, don't take it seriously. Uh, but I like their earlier, more blues-influenced uh, hard rock sound. I like it better. But I was listening, I actually have a Spotify list, playlist of Kiss songs, I put together for whatever reason. I was feeling okay. I'm gonna make this playlist on there, so I did that, and I was listening to it on shuffle a while ago, and I was struck by how slow their songs are. There's only a few. Uh, Detroit Rock City has some has some umph, you know, get up and go to it. There's a couple other songs that have that have a little get up and go to it, but a lot of the songs are really slow. <laughs> And uh, uh, and I learned this about uh, their live album, Kiss Alive and Kiss Alive 2, that uh, they're not totally live. Uh, they do a live, they do recordings live, and they take the best bits, and, you know, the best shows and songs from best songs, best performances from the best shows. But then they'll also overdub some guitar leads and fills, and they'll do that because they either they might have might have screwed something up or they'll. The, they they sang off key or they hit the wrong note or something. You know, they might they might fix it a little in the studio. They've done that on the live albums. Live at Leeds, as far as I know, nothing like that on it. And that, of course, is by the greatest band in the world, The Who. But enough of that. So yeah, Karen Carpenter is a is not only is she a better singer than Peter Chris, but I think she's probably a better. She was probably a better drummer. I'll link to it. You can check it out. I watched a documentary. In fact, last Wednesday night was documentary night here for for me. There were there were three that I watched that evening. Uh, I'll talk about one in the uh, the three cool things at the end of the show. Uh, I'll talk about that uh, one of that uh, one of them. But the the other two uh, I watched uh, Yodorowsky Yodorowsky's um, Dune, which is about this this filmmaker. This is a very avant garde type filmmaker dude named Yodorowsky. I forget his first name. I'm not even sure I got his. I'm saying his name correctly. Yordorowski. Yordor. Something. It's. I. I'm, I'm sorry. I. I'm not even sure I'm saying it right. Uh, he was going to make a movie version of Dune, 
which is a science fiction book I've never read. Uh, and he was gonna. He had he had put stuff together. He had gotten top artists and and he had even gotten Orson Welles to agree to be in the movie. And he just and the guy. It, this whole process of putting it together, it's it's kind of inspiring uh, that he was uh, you know pursuing this dream. Never came together. It just did. It didn't happen. It didn't come together. And then uh, David Lynch made a version of Dune, which I watched, and it was horrible. I just I thought it was just absolutely horrible. Um, it's and I but uh, one of the things that came out of this this the failed attempt to make Dune was there was a there was a far-reaching influence from that movie into the other you know the science fiction that followed that movie. Uh, Star Wars and Alien and Blade Runner and there's and they were showing comparisons to the artwork that had been laid out for this movie, the storyboards that were done, uh, how it how it all seemed to show up in other movies because these fellows would go on to these artists that were gathered they went on to work in other films and they brought some of the some of those ideas in there uh, and and Yaroski, uh even had Salvador Dali in for the film to play a character in there. It's just it's interesting. So it's it's uh, it's you have to get it on disc from Netflix. You might be able to find it streaming somewhere else. But uh, I wasn't going to spend a lot of time talking about that one. I'm going to spend more time talking about this one that is streaming on Netflix. You can check it out. It's called Jim and Andy, and it's a documentary about um, the making of Man of the Moon, Man on the Moon, the uh, Andy Kaufman biopic that uh, Jim Carrey play, starred in playing Andy Kaufman. Now, this is a, um, a study in um, uh, the method and how to be an asshole to the people you work with. <laughs> he, it's, Jim Carrey is, man, I don't know. I, I, I remember at the time or just before that, I liked him on In Living Color when I first spotted him, and I liked some of his stuff that I saw in that. But the movies he was doing at the time just did not have an appeal to me. I I guess The Mask or Mask would have been okay, but I never did get around to seeing that one. Uh, and um, it, the Ace Ventura movies just they just didn't look funny to me they looked there was something about them and dumb and dumber hell no the same thing with me i just it just didn't look funny to me now i my, i met my wife uh, in 1999 and uh, during our dating year uh, time months couple of years uh we you know she said well you know dumb and dumber is actually pretty funny we should you should watch it we should you know let's get it on on video and let's watch it or something so we did and i was surprised that, that it was pretty funny so okay well, you're right hon it was that was actually pretty good so i i still have not seen the ace ventura movies and i'm not sure i'm going to and i don't know which one of the two it was he did two of them uh, but there's one where he's in Africa, and he's he's in a a a uh, fake rhinoceros. I guess I don't know what the contrivance was to put it in the movie so he could observe rhinoceroses or something in the wild, or I don't I don't know what it was. And he's inside the thing, and I did see this scene. I don't know why I did, but I saw it. 
and he's, he's he's I don't know if he's naked or if he's in his underwear or something like that because it's so hot in there, and he needs to get out. And the way to get out is through the backside of the rhinoceros, and the way Carrie acts it out, uh, it's so over the top that I just I, I did I was watching it and then I did find it to be funny. I did laugh. So what do you know? Some things I do find funny. Uh, but anyway, he, uh, uh, he, there's a whole lot of, uh, well, of weirdness around the making of Man on the Moon. I mean, there's a little bit of bullshit. Uh, I talked about this on a show a long time ago. Uh, Bob Zamuda, who was a friend of Andy Kaufman's and a, a working partner with him, coming up with their gags, he would perform with him. He would pretend he would be a plant in the audience. Not, I mean, like a like a chlorophyll greenhouse plant. Plant, no, a plant. Somebody that was put there on purpose so that the performer can choose that person from the audience and and uh, work out a, a, a magic bit or do a comedy bit where he does something, you know, the, the performer does something mean to the audience member, and it's, it's not, he's not actually doing it to a civilian, he's doing it to somebody that's on the inside. That was what Bob Zamuda would do, and especially when the Tony Clifton character came into existence. And that was a character that was dreamed up by, by Andy Kaufman that would just be this Vegas-style uh, Vegas entertainer that's so bad and so caustic and so mean to the audience that it was Andy's thing. He liked to he liked to push the buttons of the audience. He liked to antagonize them. He liked to make them uncomfortable. And he, he would say he's not a comedian. He's not a stand-up comic. He's a, he's a, uh, a performance artist. He says, I don't do comedy jokes things you know he but he 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 liked the idea of antagonizing his audience um he the first thing he did that was seen on saturday night live the first national the, the big exposure that he got he did this this record act which was not a new thing jerry lewis started his career doing record acts where he plays a record and then he he mimes singing it he lip syncs it and does funny things doing that the way Kaufman did it, what made his it signature for him was that he he plays this record, which which is the theme music for the Mighty Mouse cartoon, and he just waits. He stands there quietly while the record's playing and the singers are giving the story, you know, the the theme story for the for the for Mighty Mouse, and then they get to a point where they say you can hear him say him being mighty mouse and then there would be a singer singing the part of mighty mouse and that's where andy would do the lip sync and he'd have this whole kind of almost an elvis thing with a hip shake and the arm going out to present and he'd get this face of a smile on his face and he'd lip sync the here i come to save the day and then he'd go back to uh he'd go back to just standing there waiting for the next time. So he would lip-sync just a little part of the song. Brilliant. So the story was being told by Bob Zamuda that um, Jim Carrey was trying to get the part. He had to audition, and he made these tapes. He made these um, uh, audition tapes where he would play the part of Andy Kaufman. He would do some of the Andy Kaufman routines. I'll tell you more about that. Uh, when I come back from this break, you're listening to Dimland Radio and the Z Talk uh, on the Z Talk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. Uh, I'll be back. Just sit while I get this stuff prepared. I'll be back.
beats all the competition. And we'll prove it as soon as we hear any competition. You're listening to Z-Talk Radio Network. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Don't just take my word for it, but you are listening to Dimland Radio on Talk Radio Network. Do you believe in ghosts? Do you think Bigfoot is real? Do you suspect that your neighbor is really Val Tor, leader of the lizard people of Bendar 3? Well, Dr. Dim doesn't, and he'll tell you why when you tune in to Dimland Radio Saturday nights, 11 Central, midnight Eastern on Talk Radio Network. It's an hour of science promotion, pop culture rants, personal observation, and of course, skepticism. Join Jim, Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons, Saturday nights, 11 Central, midnight Eastern, for Dimland Radio on Talk Radio Network. You're listening to Z-Talk Radio, the number one choice for music, sports, news, and talk radio. So keep that dial locked to ztalkradio.com. Welcome back to Dimland Radio here on the Z-Talk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'm your host, Jim, Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons. I know what you're thinking. I just played an R.E.M. song coming out of the break. Why didn't I play the song Man on the Moon? Uh, that would have made sense, wouldn't it? Well, Man on the Moon is from the 90s, okay? It's not from the 80s, right? <laughs> Maybe it's from the 80s. No, it's from the 90s, isn't it? When was Automatic for the Money, uh, Automatic for the People? When did that come out? Oh, I could be wrong. I don't have it. There. How about I'll use that as an excuse? I don't have it as a bumper. Okay. All right. Um, So Jim is trying to get the part. He does these audition tapes, and he gets in contact with Bob Zamuda, and Zamuda's saying, hey, they don't, they're not really, I just come on over to the place. I want to, you know, pick your brains and maybe see if I can, you know, have you helped me get this part? And he says, okay, I'll come over, even though filmmakers aren't sure you can do it. And <clears throat> comes over to Jim Carrey's house. Jim brings him into this into his home theater. And, and on the big screen is, is some, uh, some old footage of Andy Kaufman that uh, Jim was studying. And uh, he, tells, uh, he tells Zamuda to sit and... Uh, Hang on, it's, I gotta make a phone call. I'll be back. You know, I'll be here in a few minutes. Just, just sit tight. So he went. He left the room, and Zamuda just hangs out, and this this footage is still being played. And after five, ten minutes or something like that, Carrie comes back in the room and 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 reveals to Zamuda who Zamuda was thinking that what he was seeing on the screen was Andy Kaufman. You know, old bits by Andy Kaufman. That's what he thought he was seeing. And Carrie comes in laughing as he sees. No, that's me. That's me. Yeah, it's and Zamuda was floored that it's, I and I just went bullshit. 
I heard him tell that story, and it's just, you worked with the man for I don't know how long, and you can't tell the difference. Yes, Jim Carrey does a fantastic job, but you don't, I don't ever forget that that's not Jim, you know, Andy Kaufman. I don't, I'm not fooled. If you show me the clip now, if you show me a clip of of Andy Kaufman doing the routine, or Jim Carrey doing the routine, and and you show me as many clips as you can put together, Every single one at a time, I'm going to be able to know which one's Jim Carrey and which one's Andy uh, Andy Kaufman. Unless it's in the uh, Tony Clifton makeup thing. Then I might have a little difficulty. Anyway, because it could be Jim Carrey, it could be Andy Kaufman, or it could be Bob Zamuda. Because Bob Zamuda and Andy Kaufman traded off the, the Tony Clifton character, and that was this whole other story. And that's all covered in the movie. Now, this documentary, Jim and Andy... Uh, when Carrie gets the part, he, you know, he's, of course you're gonna, he's gonna talk this way. He's from Hollywood. You know, these Hollywood people. And, you know, and he had the girlfriend, uh, the Jenny McCarthy, who was, you know, anti-vax, and he's probably anti-vax too. And they're just, you know, yeah, okay, come on. And they're into the metaphysical, and then that kind of stuff. So, Jim Carrey, Starts talking metaphysically. That he's, you know, he's trying to. How am I going to handle this part? What am I going to do? And then he, what he did was he opened himself up, and he allowed. You know, he's, he's talked to Andy Kaufman, who's who's dead, and Andy was telling him, "Let me take over, and I'll be, you know, I'll, you know, you, you can channel me or whatever. I'll I'll take over. I'll do the parts." So that's what he did. This is the method. Uh, maybe not with the metaphysical stuff, but where the method is, um, at least as I understand it, that the characters, the actors, get so involved in their character that they stay in character throughout the whole thing. Or at least that's maybe it may not be the method every time for every actor the way it's done, but some some practitioners of the method will do such a thing. And there is the story. Uh, I was listening to comedy film nerds. They brought it up when they were talking about this film, and I was thinking the same thing: that when, when you know, there's, there's, a, when Lawrence Olivier acted with uh, Dustin Hoffman in the film Marathon Man, Hoffman was playing a character that was up for 24 hours or 48 hours, and and, and again, that's what. Well, if that's the character. My character is going to be at this point in the, we're filming. He's been up for that long. I got to be up for that long. Uh, you know, he tried to do things to make himself dizzy or sick or whatever, just just to do so that he was actually experiencing the things that the character was experiencing. He was using the method, and Olivier was not one of those guys. He's a classically trained stage actor, and he just looked at uh, at Dustin and said, "You know, why don't you try acting, dear boy?" Or words to that effect. It's just it's called acting. Just do it. That I could never be an actor. I couldn't do it because I would just feel silly. So I admire people who can do it that don't feel silly, just, just doing these things. Anyway, so Andy decide or Andy uh, Jim decides to be Andy for the whole shoot. So if he's if he's playing and or Tony Clifton, if he's playing the Clifton character, he becomes Tony Clifton, and he's an asshole to everybody. And especially as the Clifton character, in the Kaufman, he's not quite as bad. But then Jerry Lawler is brought in. They're going to do the the story. If you don't, if you're not familiar with it, Jerry Lawler was a uh, a wrestler, um, yeah, from Memphis, Tennessee, and he had this little wrestling network down there. And Andy, late in his his 
comedy career started wrestling women. It was part of his routine. And uh, it, it got to a point where, why don't you wrestle an actual you know, professional male wrestler? Why are you always wrestling these women? Uh, well, because that's who I want to wrestle, he would say. But they did set it up where he wrestles Jerry Lawler. Now, this is how we know that Jim Carrey was not really channeling Andy Kaufman. This is how we know this. Even though you know, there's no life after death and there's no way, you know, Kaufman's dead, there's no way he can do it. But I don't know that for sure. But this is how we know he wasn't channeling Andy Kaufman. Because Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler were friends. And that's brought up in the documentary. Lawler says that, you know, we were friends. We were planning all this stuff. The Letterman bit where Lawler gets up and slaps Kaufman right there on the air. That was all planned out. That, that's, that was, I mean, you know, fairly spontaneously planned out. Meaning there was something set up for them to do on the show that they was going to show that they made up. But uh, Andy didn't like that direction. And he, ta he was talking aside with uh, with uh, Lawler saying, you know, maybe you should really slap me and maybe you should really do this. And Lawler was saying, well, I don't want to get arrested. You know, that I, that I could get in some real trouble. And I said, yeah, that's true. You could get in some real trouble. But then when, the, when it got to the point, Lawler knew where Kaufman was taking it. He wasn't taking it to Kaufman singing him a song that they made up and were friends. He was taking it to, you're going to slap me. So... It, and, and Letterman wasn't in on it. They, they, and it's it's that's I remember watching that when it happened on Late Night with David Letterman. So it, it, Lawler says that they were friends. So if Lawler's telling the truth, Kaufman wouldn't have acted that way if he was really taking over Jim Carrey's body. It is an interesting, interesting movie. You should check it out. It's streaming on Netflix. Toward the end, uh, Carrey starts to get all philosophical about you know not worrying about uh living up to other people's expectations and blah 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 you know just all this kind of stuff and as soon as he finishes his, his bit of philosophy there i said yeah easy for you to say you've got a bank account filled with millions of dollars you can do whatever you want <laughs> the rest of us you know we kind of have to work and and struggle and if we if part of that struggle is to you know is to Meet people's expectations. I guess we, we have to do that. But in watching that movie, I realized that uh, there was uh, one of these to be had. And now it's time for a Dimland Radio pedantic moment. Yeah, this ought to be good. If he was really going method... I mean, really going method. Jim Carrey. This is silly. I know. I'm just telling you straight up, it's silly. If he was really going method, Andy Kaufman got lung cancer and died. <laughs> Jim, you just didn't take it far enough because you didn't get lung cancer and die. Yeah. I mean, how into the method are you? Okay, I know. It's silly. I know. It's really good though. Check it out. Uh, it, it, it's you do get the idea. I see now uh, the reason why the documentary was possible to be made. I probably should have said this right at the beginning. Was Jim Carrey had a film crew follow him around through the whole process, and then once it was done, he just put the film away for twenty years, and now it's been brought out, and here you go. 
Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, I have something else that I haven't done in a while. Uh, let's see. Do I have the time? Yes, I do. Here it is. It's not true. It's not true. I'm telling you. Well, what's not true this week is that uh, this notion that the Amish don't get vaccinated and the Amish don't get autism. Okay, now, there are conspiracy theories out there, and I don't know them all. Obviously, there's plenty of them. Uh, and, but of the bigger ones, I think I know some of the I know some of the variations that there are to them. So this one was a little bit of a surprise to me. This one about the Amish and uh, the Amish and the autism. I didn't ha- I hadn't heard this one. Uh, but you know, it, it's like um, oh the oh, which was the one uh, the conspiracy theory about the moon landings. Uh, I, I, there's the there's the main one that says that that NASA faked it. The U.S. government faked it because they couldn't do it, but they didn't want the Russians to know that they couldn't do it. Now, we all know that's that's silly. That's just not really thought of. Because the Russians, who we were trying to beat to the moon, uh, certainly would have been able to figure out if we'd faked it. And they played along with us? Is that it? Did the Russians have been playing? They haven't called us out for faking it. So they're playing along with the conspiracy? Really? They're in on it, too? I... Eh. You know, the Russians did beat us to the moon. They actually landed something on the moon before we did. We just got human beings on the moon first and brought them back. Uh, the Russians beat us at a lot of things <laughs> in, when it came to the space stuff. Their, their space uh, program was farther, much farther ahead than the, than the United States was. They had that Sputnik satellite, and they had first man in space and first animals in space, whatever. Just, you know, they, were, they were beating us. But anyway... So the, the the so the main moon landing conspiracy is that we didn't get there at all. There's a variation on that one where I don't know how common it is, but I have heard somebody suggest, well, we didn't make the first landing, the one that took place in July 1969, Buzz Aldrin and and uh, Neil Armstrong and Michael Collins. I think that was his name, the guy that stayed up in the capsule that orbited the moon while the other two dudes got to walk on the moon. Can you imagine? What it would be like to be one of those guys, one of the men that was able that, that were able to was able to walk on the moon, and then come back to Earth, and then to be able to look up the moon and say, "Yeah, I walked on that." Can you imagine that? I just and then have to deal with these assholes that think that you didn't do it. <sighs> but I, I, it, that has to be. I mean. <laughs> There's, I think there's been comic uh, comedian routines on this. Say like, what what else is there to do now? <laughs> nothing's gonna nothing's gonna compare to that that for the rest of your life. Yeah. And and then you know it, you you win every every oh yeah moment in a <laughs> one upsmanship at a party. You say yeah, well I walked on the moon. Uh okay, yeah that's yeah you got me beat there. I mean these are routines that other comedians have done so. Not that I think that I'm a comedian. I'm not. <laughs> but uh, there was this other one that came up about the moon landings that I hadn't heard of. And whether it was just this one guy 
who is saying it on my Facebook page, or or whether he really believes it or not, I, I don't know. But uh, the suggestion that this guy was saying is, is that he doesn't doubt that we that NASA was able to get men on the moon. He doesn't doubt that, and he thinks the con, the con, the moon hack hoax uh, is is uh, that that conspiracy theory is silly. He thinks it's wrong. He says the conspiracy is that we had we the United Americans America. NASA had men on the moon in 1963, as early as that, at building bases and stuff like that. They had to keep it secret, but then finally they had to, had to, you know, because of Kennedy, saying setting the goal. Then they finally went public or something. I, I'm not even sure with that conspiracy theory, but I'll tell you something about conflicting conspiracy theories. This is one thing that is it's it's an odd thing about it and I've mentioned it before and I you know I've probably mentioned it again. I know I'm gonna do it right now. But it's just that you got these three variations of the moon hoax landing conspiracy theory. Yeah. One is that we didn't go at all. The other one is that, uh, well, the first landing was, was faked, but the other ones were real. It's just to meet the deadline. Did the, they faked the first one. And then there's one that says we we went to the moon and landed on the moon, but it was not 1969. It was in 1963. It was way earlier. Now you could have one of those paranormal conventions come through, and you got the tables and the booths all set up with uh, people selling their wares, their books that they've written, and they're giving them their ideas. You know, in the merchant center, and you could have three booths next to each other, and you got one that has a conspiracy theorist that says that no moon landing hoax or no moon landings took place. The other one says that the 1969 one didn't take place and then you got the other guy saying the landings took place we were landing on the moon but we started in 1963 you could have these three guys sitting right next to each other and they would be fine with each other they would be allies with each other they would be they would be friends they might disagree on the conspiracy theory but they're all in alliance against the standard model ex explanation. As long as you know your your idea of what happened might conflict with my idea with what happened, but as long as both of us are agreeing there was a conspiracy, we're okay. It's 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 a it's a weird thing about conspiracies that the, as long as we're all in agreement that there's a conspiracy afoot and that the standard model explanation is wrong or is a lie and you know wake up sheeple. As long as we're all in there. We're good. Okay, but I was going to talk about the Amish and vaccinations. This is pulled right off of Snopes. So I'm just going to... There's a there's this notion going around that the Amish don't get autism because they do not vaccinate their children. Uh, the anti-vax... Uh, I'm going to read this. This is from Snopes. Uh, Anti-vaccine advocates have, at least since the early 2000s, used the Amish, a group of insular individuals descended from the Swiss Antibaptist immigrants who shun modern technology as a piece of evidence that links autism to vaccines, which there is no evidence that autisms are linked to vaccines. There is none. Um, yeah, let's see. This concept gained traction in 2005. There was a reporter named Dan Olmsted. Uh, he conducted a non-scientific survey of the Lancaster County uh, in uh, Pennsylvania, which has a large population, one of the largest of Amish people, and found he 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 checked it to find any cases of autism. He found three, and the conspiracy folks used this guy's work to say, "See, huh? See, but it's not even a scientific study." Um, 
The argument uh, that near non-existent rates of autism amongst the Amish are related to a failure to vaccinate rests on two assumptions. One, the Amish do not vaccinate their children, and two, that the Amish do not get autism. Uh, both assumptions are false. A 2011 study published in the journal Pediatrics surveyed 1,000 Amish parents about their vaccination habits. Of the 359 people who responded, 68% stated that all their children had received at least one immunization, and 17% reported that some of their children had received at least one immunization. These rates are lower than the national average, but to claim the Amish do not vaccinate their children is false, as a majority of them do vaccinate to some degree. Further, researchers that have documented many cases of autism among the Amish populations, researchers from the University of Miami and Vanderbilt University interviewed 1,899 Amish children from two prominent Amish communities. Uh, uh, they tell where, I'm not going to get into that. Um, in a 2010 presentation to the International Society of Autism Research, they stated, preliminary data have identified the presence of autism in the Amish community at a rate of approximately 1 in 271 children using standard autism screening and diagnostic tools throughout, uh, although some modifications may be in order. Further studies are underway to address the cultural norms and the customs that may be playing a role in the reporting of, st of style of caregivers. Okay, so they do get autism. They do get vaccinations. Now, this is a double-edged sword here because the anti-vaxxers will use the fact that uh, what they believe is that the, the Amish do not vaccinate and they do not their kids don't get autism to say that vaccines cause autism. But then when you say, well, your, your premise is wrong, they do vaccinate and their kids do get autism, then they can say, well, then see, vaccines cause autism. You, you can't win. You can't win. But... That that the autism that the Amish do not vaccinate, and that their um, uh, that their kids and that they don't have cases of autism, uh, it's just not true. It's not true. It's not true. I'm telling you, cause I'm up here and you're nowhere. It's not true. And I'm a bit behind on a break, so you're listening to Dimland Radio on the ZTalk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'll be back right after this break. You're listening to Z Talk Radio Network. You don't say. Oh, what? You think you went off to college or something? On ztalkradio.com. That's the most amazing thing since Grandma survived the outhouse incident. Hi, I'm Amanda Pete. Like all new parents, my husband and I want what's best for our baby. When it was time for our daughter's immunizations, we wanted the facts. So we carefully researched vaccines. We spoke with doctors and other experts and asked some tough questions. 
We decided the vaccines were the best thing for our child. I urge you to get the facts. Learn the facts about vaccines so you can make the best healthcare decisions for your family. Thank you. A message from the American Academy of Pediatrics and vaccinateyourbaby.org. Remember, there's no hugging in the chat room. You're listening to Dimland Radio on Z Talk Radio Network. Did you see that UFO sighting that made the news? What did that latest study about alternative treatments really say? Is this photo making the rounds real or a hoax? Doubtful News is a unique website featuring news about pseudoscience, the paranormal, anomalies, and questionable claims framed with a skeptical view. Come visit doubtfulnews.com every day for news about cryptozoology, conspiracies, shams, scams, and more. Follow us on Twitter at Doubtful News. Critical thinking is essential in assessing today's news. Doubtful News helps you decide, can you really believe this stuff? <laughs> We're scanning up a good time on your favorite radio station. You're listening to Z-Talk Radio Network. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Dimland Radio on the ZTalk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'm your host, Jim, Dr. Jim Fitzsimmons. Okay, um, remember last week uh, I made, had a pedantic moment about uh, the headline of a story about uh, Yeti samples turning out to not be Bigfoot? And I said, well, of course they turned out to not be Bigfoot. They were Yeti samples, <laughs> right? Remember? Remember how I did that? Well, um, I figured I should tell you I, I didn't tell you about the story <laughs> what the story showed uh, uh, apparently there were some samples that were DNA tested that uh, these samples were gathered that were claimed to have been from uh, yetis and uh, they were they were DNA tested and it turned out that uh, virtually all the samples that were tested uh, hair um, uh, some bone and I think there, there was a tooth that was checked uh, virtually all of it turned out to be bear from bears, right? Um, except the tooth. Uh, now I'm going to read just this little bit from the article. Uh, in a new genetic analysis, yeti bones, fur, and other biological material material turned out to be bear parts. All the samples that were supposed to be yetis matched brown and black bears that are living in the region, said Charlotte Lindqvist who studies bear evolution at the University of Buffalo in New York and Singapore's Nanyang uh, Technological University. There was just one exception, a yeti tooth uh, kept at the Reinhold Messner Mountain Museum was a dog's tooth. So, yeah, so it just just a quick, you know, that's what it turned out to be. Um, that turned out to be the from animals that that are known to be in that part of the world. Um, so the search goes on. Uh, but uh, yeah, if that's well, of course, you know, if you got Yeti DNA, you're not going to find Bigfoot from that because 
Well, but that was last week's pedantic moment. But I figured I'd just let you know what was going on there. Have you you guys know of the uh, of the illustrator uh, from the mid twentieth century, uh, Norman Rockwell? Of course you do. You've seen his stuff. If you didn't, if you don't know him by name, you've seen his stuff. He used to do illustrations for the Saturday Evening Post magazine, uh, for ma other magazines, and that. And he was very. He's just a really good illustrator. Just excellent, excellent illustrator. Uh, one of the things I learned about him when I was going to art school was uh, that you know these really great ex illustrators back in the day would you know would create their designs, their illustrations, knowing that they were going to be reproduced and and reduced in size. So when you would look at originals, they seemed to be a little loose maybe a little almost a little out of focus just there's something that seemed a little off about them you know still great but but when they get reduced to the size of a magazine cover or an image on a page in a magazine the they tighten up and they look even they look even better and anyway so Norman Rockwell had done all kinds of covers and he just this Americana stuff, and he even did you know, stuff to to help push uh, the idea of uh, civil rights and being, you know, the golden rule of, of treating others as you would like to be treated, and, and try. He did he did some stuff of that nature, and in 1959 he did an illustration that uh, that's called the Jury Room, and it's it's. Uh, um, I mean, I don't know if that's the official name, but I, that's what I found it under, the jury room. And what it shows is a, a, a jury, 12 people, and they are, uh, it's, man, this is such a cool illustration, too. And it demonstrates that uh, people smoked back then. I remember mentioning that last week about the Mad Men stuff and all the smoking. Well, there's some smoking going on. But what this image shows is uh, inside the jury room, there are uh, 12 people, 11 men, one woman. And there are 10, ten of the men are uh, gathered around the one woman who is sitting at the end of this long table. She's uh, sitting up with her back straight in her chair. She's got her arms crossed in front of her. She's, uh, she's looking a little intimidated, but yet firm. Uh, you see the chairs have been moved uh, uh, to that end of the table and that all the guys are standing in the, you know, the well there are, there are guys sitting and standing but they're all gathered around her there's one fellow who's who's sitting he's sprawled out in his chair as you can see his legs coming out from underneath the table he's just sprawled there just like he's given up he's just you know he's just got his eyes head down his eyes closed and he's just he's not even bothering but you can see the floor is co covered in, in uh, rolled-up paper and, and pencils and cigarette butts and, and all that. And what we, the action of the illustration is these men are gathered around her, imploring her to come over to their side. She's the lone holdout. Whether she's the only one that wants to acquit or convict, we don't know. But she's the lone holdout. That's pretty obvious. Um, 
Norman Rockwell put himself in the illustration. He, I believe, is the fellow that's standing behind her. He's got his hands on his hips. He's got a pencil behind his ear. Uh, I believe that's Norman Rockwell there. Uh, that could be. Or it could be the guy that's leaning over the top of her. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not certain. But I know he's in there somewhere. Um, so this came to my attention that by through Facebook where some fellow had uh, put it on his page and said, this is a perfect example of mansplaining. And I, well, you know me. I get to be a little bit of a gadfly here and there. I saw that and I looked at it and I thought, well, yeah, maybe. But um, suppose... Suppose this was an illustration which the lone holdout was a man. Yet this it's all men in the group, and it's a man that's the lone holdout. Would it still be mansplaining, or would it just be splaining? And you know, I asked that, and there was a good question where somebody asked, "Well, what's the significance of having the lone holdout be a woman?" It's the only woman in the group. What's the significance of that? Which is a good question. I don't know. This illustration is from 1959. From what I could find out about it, uh, in 1959, um, there were still some states in the United States that didn't allow women to be on juries. Uh, so this might be a relatively new thing that women would be on juries. But is this making any kind of a statement that uh, women can't deliberate as well as men or something is this is that with a statement that's being made here or you know good for her i saw some reactions saying people saying well good for her she's she's not letting these men intimidate her into you know uh, giving up her position you know that's i guess i i don't know <laughs> um I'm sure if this illustration could talk, there'd be fellows making statements like, listen here, little lady, you're a homemaker or a housewife. What do you know? That kind of thing. And, you know, okay. So is, I guess mansplaining is, it's not just the fact that a man is explaining something to a woman, although sometimes it kind of feels that way, the way some people I've heard use it. Eh, they're the minority. It's more of a attitude to it. So... I don't know if this is a perfect example of mansplaining, because, well, you know, in the movie Twelve Angry Men, which came out two years before this illustration was made, it's all men, Twelve Angry Men, and there was one man who stood against the group, saying that, you know, he voted not guilty and uh, wanted to talk about it. It's a really good film. You should watch that one, too. I've got some movie ideas for you this week. I don't know. I'll post it, the image. You can take a look at it. Do you think it's a... A perfect example of mansplaining? I don't know. Three cool things. Uh, they all have to deal with a documentary that is streaming on Netflix. Uh, it's a PBS documentary. And it's called The Farthest. And it's about the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 uh, spacecraft probes that were sent off into space to go check out uh, the outer planets... Uh, 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 Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, uh, and uh, Neptune. Or, I'm sorry, Uranus and Neptune. Uh, sorry, I just had to make that bad joke. Uh, and there are three, there are lots of cool things about it. 
lots of cool things about this documentary. Uh, and I will, I will be honest with you guys. I was brought to tears, almost to tears, at least three times during this thing, maybe more. I mean, it just, I, I was so moved. When they, when they brought up the Space Shuttle Challenger, the way that was handled, I was just, <laughs> I could feel this, what's going on? <laughs> what's happening to me? Why am I getting emotional? Uh, it's, it was so, it, it, it's just, it was so amazing. Um, uh, number three, I will, that I'm picking for of the many cool things in this, they they talked about in your pocket. You have a, a device that has the that that has more computing power than what they had to work with when figuring out this. Uh, uh, you know how to get this these 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 spacecraft to where they wanted them to go, and immediately I'm thinking, well, a smartphone, and no, the guy. The guy pulls out of his pocket his his car, his key, his remote opener for the key for, the, for his car. You, you know what it is. You press the button. It goes bip, bip, you know, that thing. Right? That's, that's what he shows. That's the, the computing power that they were working with. I, 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 I Really? Um, number two was uh, they made the point that uh, it's a timing thing, that the planet's are set up in just the right positioning that if we launch a rocket, we can get it to Jupiter. We can use Jupiter's gravity to help slingshot the 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 spacecraft to Saturn. Use Saturn's gravity to slingshot it along to Uranus, and the same thing. You know, just to use it to give it speed and to, to get it out there to cut time and to do it, but. Uh, and to get these things there, but the the window of opportunity opens only you know once every 176 years, and so one of the guys that was pitching this idea to President Nixon at the time went into his you know had a meeting with him and said, okay, now we've the last president who had a chance to do something about this. You know that this this opportunity was there for was Thomas Jefferson, and he blew it. <laughs> and Nixon thought that was funny, so Nixon gave them the go ahead for two, and I'm not sure if it meant two ships to build or two of the planets to visit. And I think it was to, to build two ships, and then, uh, but there was a limitation on how many planets they could pull off to visit. Let's, so we'll just we'll just we're just going to go for. Saturn, uh, for Jupiter and Saturn, but they secretly worked out ways to get to Uranus and Neptune, which they did, and and it's just it's just phenomenal that they they did these things. So you get to see pictures of of those of those planets that that Galileo would have crapped himself <laughs> being able to see, uh, and um, and then the 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 number one coolest thing about it. And I'm telling you, I almost lost it when I when I realized this. There are records that they put on on the two satellites. Uh, I don't think they're satellites. The two spacecraft. There are there are records on these, and they're made of gold, and they will last for a long time. And on these records are information, sounds from Earth, mathematical equations to help them to figure stuff out, and, and you know, whatever. So there's information on there, pictures. All this kind of stuff, and 
there are greetings in several different languages. There's music, several different kinds of music. They had like 90 minutes to pick music for for the album. And the album is on both, or the record is on both uh, uh, of the Voyager 1. It's on Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. It's on both of them. And uh, it has, and it led to the joke because it's got, uh, it's got Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. And Saturday Night Live had this joke where they said, we've got a four-word message from aliens in space. And that message is, send more Chuck Berry. <laughs> uh, and so that song's on there. And the voice of Nick Sagan, Carl Sagan's son, as a child, saying, you know, hello from the children of Earth is on there. And what is so what what brought me to the edge of tears <laughs> was the fact that those records will last one billion years and possibly two billion years. Nick Sagan's voice is out there in space. Chuck Berry's Johnny B. Good is out there for a, a two billion years, it could be. I, it's just it's mind blowing and it's and you know I, I don't I say it all the time it's science science made that possible and it's just uh, I, I I don't know what else to say I hope you guys have had three at least three cool things happen to you this week it's called the farthest it's on Netflix check it out it's just it's it's awesome good night doctor good night Frau Blucher Made it to the end of another Dimland radio, so um, uh, before I start tearing up thinking about the billion years, um, it's amazing. Uh, anyway, you've been listening to Dimland Radio on the Sea Talk Radio Network. Stay skeptical, and extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I'm your host, Jim, Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons, reminding you to sleep with the lights off. Should see you next week. check out my show notes at dimland.com just click on the blog option and you can email your questions and comments to dr dim at dimland.com that's d-r-d-i-m at dimland.com and the opening theme song ram is by the Yolius and is used with permission Production of the Z Talk Radio Network. And now a message to our competitors. Thanks. Thanks for, for tuning us in. in. 
Bonjour, Monsieur Dim. You are too clever for us naughty people. What did you think of tonight's installment of Dimland Radio? Wow. Wow. Well, well I'm, I'm going, going to hell. hell.